you probably have the experience like I have where you come across a picture in a drawer or something like that and then all of a sudden you oh, I forgot about that part of my life and takes you back into that, to that what your life was like in that moment and what God was doing in that moment. I had an experience like that with the church. Andrew and I were standing on the stage at South Street Campus and he was casting vision to the people that might join him here at the North Aurora Campus in the future. And I, looked, I was listening to him and thinking, I was here not long ago with Pastor Sterling, dreaming about our first campus, and all of a sudden I just had this, just a reminder from God that this is his answer to prayer. This is what he, we dreamed about becoming, a family of neighborhood churches, and it's happening. When I think about Chapel Street North Aurora, the thing that I'm most excited about is the potential for this church to really embody what it means to be a neighborhood church. This building sits dead center in the middle of a neighborhood. That there's a school across the street, there's a care home right around the corner. Even the neighbor's backyards back up to this church. And so when I think about the kind of relationships that we can have with the people who live quite literally on the doorstep of this building, it really excites me. As I'm passing through the neighborhood, I was seeing these signs of keep God close, everyone else should be six feet away. And it was very beautiful to me because it's a, it's a couple things. I'm thinking, if someone is that excited about their relationship with God and that excited about sharing that with the community and that excited about their church, that they want to put up a sign that's notifying the neighborhood of we are here, we're here for you. I just saw that that's a beautiful representation of what the church is meaning to those individuals who attend. The church is meant to be the faithful presence of God in a, in a location, in a community. God's people, long before the church was established, I mean, he says when they go into exile in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, seek the prosperity and pray for the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. And because they're there, they should be a blessing to that place. Well, that's what the church is. We're here, we're sent here. I've actually been really surprised by how quickly God is already getting at work in this community. I've had the chance to connect with the principal across the street at the school. Uh, she's connected us to our staff, and we had just an amazing opportunity to start getting to know them, to, to write encouraging notes and prayers to them for how we want to support them. And I've actually been humbled by how excited they are for us to, to come here as well. When construction's happening, you sort of get this picture that there's a lot more going on than just walls going up. There's uh, spiritual work being done. We see it in the neighborhood now. God is building something in more than just the building. When I think about the success of Chapel Street North Aurora, I think is number one that this would be a place of real community for Chapel Street families. That when they come through these doors, they feel that they are a part of Christ's family. That every face that comes in here feels known, they feel valued, they feel welcomed. And then secondly, and importantly as well, that the community feels that Chapel Street is a blessing. I always think about the phrase that's become common now at our church, that we want to be a church, not primarily for ourselves, but for our neighbors. I'm really looking forward to my neighborhood church, doing service and outreach in the community, and as residents of that same community, giving us the opportunity to build relationships with people who live within the neighborhood. As we continue to expand, as God gives us opportunity, and multiply into neighborhood churches, our opportunities to meet more needs, to, re to reach more people, to make a greater impact on those that are hurting, and to do more gospel work around the world grows as well. Seek the prosperity, pray for the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. For in its welfare, he says, you'll find your own. That's what we want to be, a blessing to the city, a blessing to the community, to this place.
Well, to all of you, our Chapel Street Church online family, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. We hope that God has been blessing you through our worship this morning. And I hope you're as excited about what you just saw as I am, as we are here at Chapel Street Church. The young woman in the video just said she is excited about her neighborhood church. And that statement is at the heart of who we want to be, a family of neighborhood churches, reproducing ourselves in communities and neighborhoods for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel and for the blessing of our neighbors. And toward that end, we are preparing right now as we speak for our North Aurora campus, our fourth campus. The construction is underway. Pastor Andrew, who you heard from, is already rallying together a core team. We intend to launch publicly that campus this coming fall. Now, if you've been tracking along with us or you call Chapel Street Church your home, you already know probably that the whole project is about $2 million. And we have $1.1 million left on that project. Let me tell you about another exciting opportunity. Recently, a very generous donor has come to us and said that he would like to uh, pledge a 50% matching of what's left on that project. So I'm asking all of you who consider Chapel Street Church your home, would you consider prayerfully what you might give above and beyond your regular giving so that we could see that gift matched and launch this campus completely debt-free this coming fall. What an exciting opportunity we have. You'll see on your screen how you can do that. Whether you write a check or you do this digitally, simply indicate neighborhood church multiplication, and those funds will go uh, toward that gift, that project, and be matched by this individual. How good is our God that he's already preparing a way for us to continue to see this vision unfold? Would you continue to pray with us and for us and partner with us as we see God's kingdom being built here at Chapel Street Church? And we're glad that you're along for the journey. Let's pray now and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we now come to your word and we know that we need to hear from you. We're so grateful for the way you pour out your blessing in our lives. And we confess that sometimes we are too focused on what we think we lack, what we don't have, or what's wrong. And there's plenty that's wrong in us and in this world. But now we turn our hearts and our minds to what is right and good and true. And we see that in your word. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, or if you're just catching up, we are in a series on the New Testament letter called 1 Peter. It's the first letter written by Peter. Makes sense? Peter wrote a series of letters, two of them in fact, to a group of churches in what's Turkey today, but Asia Minor at the time. People living in a culture that was increasingly hostile uh, toward their faith and toward the church. And that's somewhat relevant for many of us today. And at the start of this series, we issued a memory verse challenge. Now, maybe you've never memorized the Bible before, or maybe you have, but the challenge for all of us who are part of this journey together is to memorize, commit to memory, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Here it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Commit that to memory. Write it down, repeat it, say it to yourself. Uh, When you see other Chapel Streeters, encourage them to recite it. Let's get those truths from our minds into our hearts because they lay the foundation of everything that Peter's going to say and we're going to study as we go through this letter. Now, uh, we're going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 2 and read verses 4 through 10 uh, as Peter continues uh, with this beautiful description of who we are as part of the church. Let's read verses 4 through 10. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a passage. The focus of this letter is, is, is changing as Peter moves on. So in the first chapter, Peter is focused not exclusively, but primarily on what God does in us individually. Causes us to be born again into a living hope. Calls us then, last week we looked at, to live a holy life, meaning a distinct life, a life that reflects his character. Now he's shifting the focus from what God does in us individually to what God does in us collectively as we come to him. Specifically, what does God do? What is it, this thing we call the church, the community of faith, the people of God gathered in a specific location? Something remarkable happens as they gather. And God is, Peter's, to use Peter's imagery and language, building something, constructing something. Do you know people who have building projects going on all the time? My dad's like that. He loves projects. Always likes to tinker and build things and, and work on stuff. And I've got friends who seem to have never-ending projects around their house. They just love that sort of thing. I'm not all that good uh, at building things. And so projects for me should last a half a day and they last two weeks. Uh, but some people are really good. And they love building projects. Do you know that God has a building project going on? Uh, recently, uh, I came across the story of the Winchester Mystery House. Here's an image of this house. Uh, and it, here's the story behind this. In the late 1800s, uh, the heiress of the Winchester Arms Fortune uh, came into $25 million in 1880-something, which is a lot of money now, let alone then. And she had some mental issues where she believed that, God, that, that she was going to live forever if she continued to build her estate uh, even to the point of making rooms for the ghosts of those who've been killed by her husband's uh, rifles or something along those lines. Anyway, she started this building project in 1894, uh, uh, and it, it lasted for 37 years. And the, here's a few details about this. In San Jose, California, it's, uh, it's eight-room farmhouse she purchased initially. And she began this renovation project, this expansion project that lasted 38 years, six acres that covers the house, 25,000 square feet, 2,000 doors, 10,000 windows, six kitchens, 48 staircases, more than 10 of them leading to nowhere, uh, and 47 fireplaces, and the list goes on and on. Just this crazy, nonsensical, strange house. Well, unlike Sarah Winchester, God has a building project in the world, and he also is not finished but he's very intentional about what he's building. He's very specific, and it's still going on. And here's the point. If you're in Christ, you're part of what God is building. God's building program on the earth is his church. That's what God is doing. What's the primary thing God is up to in the world? Saving sinners, yes. Making his gospel known, yes. Redeeming people, of course. But the primary instrument, the primary way God is doing that is through his people, his church. 
This is his building project. You know that most of the New Testament is letters written to churches? God is building his kingdom through his church. You, me, us, we're part of it. God's project. We are what God is building in the earth. So stop for a moment and think about this, what this means for our lives. The question is not, should I go to church this weekend? Or should we just stay at home and watch online on the couch in our, in our sweats? Which is just fine. Most of you are doing that right now. The question is not, should I go to church this, this weekend? Or you know, should I be part of this ministry this week? The question is, am I a part of what God is building on the earth? Are you a part of what God is doing in the world? The presence of God in Geneva, in Batavia, in Elburn, in Sugar Grove, in St. Charles, in Elgin, across the country where some of you are tuning in from. Are you part of what God is building right there in that location? And we're going to talk about this in, in three ways that Peter gives us this building project. The first is the basis, the basis of what God is building. Peter draws on several Old Testament passages that involve images or metaphors using the image of stones. Remember, Peter's name, uh, he, his name was Simon. Jesus calls him as one of the 12 disciples and changes his name to P Pet Peter, is the transliteration, but Petros, meaning rock, small rock or, or stone. Jesus changed Peter's name to Rocky, if you will, or stone. And Peter's writing now about the fact that what is true of him as a stone in, in God's building project can also be true of everyone who comes to Christ. Listen again to how Peter describes Jesus as the foundation in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you come to him, a living stone. Here's what Peter's saying. As you come to him, meaning it's a present imperative, something we're actively doing, he is the living stone, rejected by men. So this, notice the contrast here between rejected, chosen, and precious. Jesus Christ is the living stone that many reject, but is precious in God's sight, is chosen. He's the living stone. Jesus, the living stone. Peter's not saying... This is the first part, Jesus, the living stone. Peter's not saying something about Jesus that he, Jesus didn't say about himself. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, look at the Old Testament passages now. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Or Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter directly quoting this psalm. Now these verses and many others like them, Jesus himself uses to apply to him. The Old Testament is full of these references to God as God's people and God's building and God's kingdom as a stone that God is going to use and build. Even in Daniel 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he says the stone that's going to destroy all kingdoms is the kingdom of God. Jesus this upstart rabbi in the first century comes on the scene and he says all those images, all those verses, they're really about me. They're really pointing to me. In Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, this is how Jesus wraps up the story of the, the parable of the, the, the tenants. And he says, he looked directly at them, who's them, religious leaders, 
It says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, this whole parable is about me. And the fact that you don't get it is fulfillment of this prophecy. It's crushing you, in other words. You're stumbling over who he is. He's the rejected stone, and he is the living stone, and he is the cornerstone, Peter says. Jesus, the cornerstone. This Jesus is the rock on which he'll build his kingdom. Some of you might be familiar with Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus says, I'll, uh, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right before that, he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the, you're the Christ, the Holy One. And Jesus says, blessed are you, for that did not, was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And then he says, I tell you, you are Peter, but on this rock I'll build my church. Not Peter himself. And Peter gets this. But on Jesus. Jesus is the rock or the cornerstone on which he's going to build his church. Let's look at verses 6 through 7 again. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There it is again. Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, cornerstones today are usually decorative. If you go over to our South Street campus, there's uh, different parts of the building that show uh, there's a cornerstone uh, stone plaque set into the wall that says 1962, 1984. Over here at our Kesslinger campus, there's a stone plaque that says 2004. They're just decorative uh, co to commemorate when the building was built, a celebration. Because we don't build with cut stone that way. We pour foundations with footings and, and reinforced concrete and all that. But in the ancient world, that's not how they did it. The cornerstone was the largest, most massive, most important stone and the first stone laid in any building project because everything was tied into the strength of that stone. It set the angles. It was the reference point for the whole building. It was absolutely essential in building because it set the structural integrity of the building. If the cornerstone was off, the whole building would be off. And so when Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone. He's saying he's the fixed reference point for everything God is doing in the world. He's the foundation on which our individual lives and the whole church rests. He's the thing that holds it all together. We are all tied into him. Years ago, I had the chance to travel to Jerusalem. It was the trip of a lifetime. So many sites, uh, I still look back over my notes and journals and images from that trip and, and reflect on the things that I learned. And one of the most remarkable experiences of that trip was, was traveling to see the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, and at the Temple Mount, you, the temple itself has been long since been torn down, but part of the, the structure that's been torn down and rebuilt several times over the years, still sits there, this massive Temple Mount complex. You're probably familiar with images like this of what we call the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Here you see Orthodox Jews at that wall uh, praying because it's the closest that Orthodox Jews could come to what they would believe the site of the Temple and the Holy of Holies. You'll notice that there's different stones there, and the further down you go... You'll see these stones get larger, and some of them right at the base of where they're standing and below that level are the Herodian stones, the stones of the temple in the time of King Herod, meaning in the time of Jesus. Um, 
they're called the ashlar stones. They have a very particular way that they're cut. Here's an image I took when we traveled deep beneath uh, the street level. So we're we're several, uh, we're tens of, of, dozens of feet below what the image you just saw right now in these archaeological tunnels. And these are the foundation stones. You notice those seams there, those insets that are cut in the rock? Those are the, that's how archaeologists know they're Ashlar or Herodian stones in the time of Jesus. These stones are massive. Um, some of the larger ones that are visible are 35 feet long, 8 feet wide, and 5 feet tall, weighing an estimated 80 tons, 8-0. Huge stones. But the largest of them are actually below this level, even further down. They're called the master course stones, the cornerstones, the first stones laid for the whole temple structure. The largest of those master course stones, the cornerstone, is 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 10 feet tall, and weighs in excess of 500 tons. It's astounding to think about that, this massive block of limestone. How was it cut? How was it moved? And interestingly, it's still there today. The Romans, when they came in 70 AD uh, to destroy the city and the temple mount, left those large stones untouched. They couldn't move them. And they're still there. Now, when Peter wrote this letter, the temple was still in Jerusalem. It hadn't been yet been torn down. He's writing in 63 or 64 AD. But in six or seven years, the temple would be destroyed. In fact, if we go to Mark's gospel, Mark 13, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says this. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I had that experience being in Jerusalem. Look at the size of those stones. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicting what would come in 70 AD when the Roman legions would destroy the temple and throw them down, all except those master course stones. So Peter has in his mind the image of the temple, but he knows that God is building something greater than the physical temple and the physical stones. Uh, The temple has never been rebuilt to this day. You go there today, there's no temple. There's just a temple mount and those ancient stones. But God is and continues to build his church. That's what he's doing. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.11, that no one can lay any foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's always been the cornerstone. This brings us to the building. The building. We are the building. In verse 4, Peter says, as you come to him, in coming to him. It's something that, it's a, the Greek verb is present imperative, meaning it's happening now and it, it's continually needed. That as we come to Jesus, specifically as individuals come together in, in the presence of God, God does something in us. It's not something we do once upon a time or once for all, but continually. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we come to the living stone, we become living stones in him. Living stones is an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, we use phrases like stone dead or dead as a stone, but in Jesus, he brings stone dead hearts to life. We become like living stones in him. 
He's the source of our life. He brings from us from stone dead to living stones as we come to him, as we, the church, come to him, Christ. God is building something. So what, what exactly happens? What does God do when people come together in him, specifically? Where is the presence of God to be known on earth if the temple is all, is, doesn't exist anymore? Where can people find the presence of God? Where do people in this world look to know where God is and what he is doing? To his word, of course. To nature, well, we're told that he's present in nature. But fundamentally, the New Testament is telling us the presence of God is made manifest in the people of God. So in your community, where's the presence of God? In his church, in his people gathered. As they come to him like living stones, he's building them together to be a spiritual house in which he dwells, the presence of God. I don't know if you think about that when you come to church or tune into church. We're joined together to be the visible, manifested presence of God in the world. How bad do you think our world needs the presence of God today? We're desperate for it. And I think many of us are, are crying out to God, God, why don't you do something? God, where are you? And God is looking at his church saying, you're where I am. I'm meant to be with you. God dwells in us by his spirit and God is joining us together to be worshiping, serving communities where the presence of God is known. This, by the way, this this means the church is crucial to what God is doing in the world. This is why we care so much about what we call the neighborhood church vision. This is why we're passionate and excited and praying about the fourth campus expansion. Not because we're building our kingdom, but because the presence of God known in a community, known in a neighborhood, is what he's doing. What a calling that is. Let me put it to you this way. As we come to Jesus, the living stone. We become living stones that are joined together in him. That's the church. As we, individual dead stones, come to him. Can you imagine a greater calling in your life than this? Can you think of something more important for you to be a part of than the gathered community, worshiping, serving, giving, praising, thanking, that is the presence of God in that location? You can travel around the world. I've been to lots of different parts of the world. I've been to Samara, Russia, and Zambia, and Zimbabwe, Africa, and the Middle East, and so many, and, and Ecuador, and South America, and so many places, and find the presence of God in his people gathered, like living stone joined together. Peter calls us a holy priesthood in that verse we just saw. Does that sound strange to you? A holy priesthood? Do you think of yourself as a priesthood? I'm guessing probably not. When I, uh, years ago, when I first started out in ministry, well, a young man that I, uh, well, it wasn't young then, but I, when I was in high school, a guy I grew up with uh, had heard that I was uh, a pastor and he couldn't believe it, which tells you something about my background in high school days. And he made the trip to find out where I was. He went to the church that I was working at and he sat in the back and I'm up there speaking to about a thousand high school students and I can see in the back a guy who looks like my friend Mike. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, is that him? And he sat there the whole thing. And then he waited around afterwards. He came up to me and he goes, uh, I heard that you were like in the church now. I said, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he said, so what are you, uh, what are you like Father Jeff now? Are you a priest? He had no, no context for, that, for what that meant to him. Like it, I, he knew me as the knucklehead, meathead when we were in high school playing football together. And now he sees me. Are you supposed to be some holy man, some priest? That's not what Peter's saying. Peter says, 
you are a priesthood that God has joined together. Here's what he means. In the Old Testament, priests were a very specific class. Uh, you had to be a male from the line and tribe of Aaron. Uh, that was it. Very specific people. So access to God, to the presence of God, was restricted to a place, the temple, to a system, the sacrificial system, to a uh, people, the, through a people, the priesthood. And it was kind of a spectator sport, meaning you came and offered your sacrifices, but the priests did the work. You gave your sacrifice to them. They put it on the altar. They offered it up. They said the prayers for you. They burned the incense for you. And so you kind of trusted the priesthood to do that for you. In the Old Testament, worship and sacrifice was, it really was a spectator sport. But in Christ, God turns spectators into participants. He takes outsiders and makes us insiders. As we come to him, we're not here just to watch others worship. You're not, the church is not just showing up and observing, what are these people into, what are they doing? That's not being part of the church. We are literally, Peter says, priests of God. We participate in the work of of worship, the work of God. But what sacrifices do we offer? I mean, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice once for all. His death on the cross is sufficient for our sins. We don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. Well, let me offer you a couple of suggestions from the New Testament about our work as a holy priesthood coming together. Romans 12.1 tells us that I, Paul says, I appeal to you that by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. So the first sacrifice is our whole life. My life, how I think, how I speak, how I act, is a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of life that acknowledges his name. The sacrifice of praise. The coming and singing his praises, declaring his praises. Well, how is praise a sacrifice? Well, sometimes you don't feel like it. Sometimes you don't want to praise God. You don't feel like telling God, praising his name and calling him holy and saying, I believe and I trust in you. But we do it anyway because it's true regardless of how we feel. We offer him a sacrifice of praise. And as we do so, he realigns our hearts. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our, our giving and serving and sharing with others, our care for the poor is a sacrifice that pleases God. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul refers to the giving, the financial generosity of the Philippians as an sacrifice that it's acceptable and pleasing to God. So recognizing that all we have is God's, not ours, and so giving back to him is also a sacrifice. As we come to him, we are not just spectators, but participants with ourselves, our very lives. Spectators watch what's going on and perhaps we get some bit of inspiration. I think this is one of the problems in the American suburban contemporary church. We think it's a spectator sport. We show up, uh, we, we like the music or we evaluate it, how it was. We, we get some inspiration from the sermon and we go on with our lives. We're just receiving and spectating. But the New Testament letters, particularly 1 Peter chapter 2, is telling us the church is not a spectator sport. God is calling you to become living stones in him. Joined to all the work of God in the community, singing, praising, thanking, serving, giving, praying, caring for the people that are in need around you, joining in the work. 
And here's the amazing thing. I've talked to people who uh, for, came to our church uh, and were spectators for a while. And the way I could tell is they would often say things like, well, I like your church as if it's mine. It's not mine. It's his. Uh, I like what you're doing. And then over time, they begin to talk about it as their church. And then they begin to think of it as his church, and they're a part of it, of what he's doing. And they want to be involved in what he's doing. They begin to identify themselves with God's work and God's people. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Can we just pause there for a minute? This phrase is so desperately needed right now in our culture. Because of Christ, we are not strangers and aliens to each other with different political ideologies and factions. We are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in him in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In him, that phrase in him is crucial. It's a uniquely Christian phrase. What does it mean to be in him? As you come to him, you're joined together in him. You ever hear anybody say uh, that they're in Muhammad or in Buddha or in Confucius? No. But as followers of Jesus, something unique happens that we are joined in him. His life is our life. His life becomes our life as we come to him. He sets the angles. He is the reference point. He holds it all together. Notice uh, that in the text, Peter says three times that Jesus is rejected by men. The builders, specifically in verse 7, rejected him. They looked at him and they decided he's not worth building our life on. But to God, he's chosen and precious. They try to fit Jesus, perhaps, may in our culture, many try to fit Jesus into their, the life they're constructing. I see this so frequently. Many of you, you're coming to Jesus as if like Jesus is one more stone in the life that you're building for yourself, as if he can help you out. I'll fit him in to what I'm, to what I'm constructing, the life that I want, as if you think you're building your life and Jesus might help you with a building project. That's not how it works, friends. We come to him, the cornerstone and he joins us together with each other in him. Jesus Christ is either the cornerstone on which your whole life rests, or he's the stone over which you trip and fall, stumble, or falls on you. It's one or the other. You can't fit him into your building. You're either building your life on him, or he's the stone over which you stumble, Peter says. The builders of this world are still rejecting him, they do not see or recognize the power, the majesty, the beauty, and the glory of who Jesus is. But we are to be different. This brings us to the last point, the beauty. The basis is Christ, the cornerstone. The, the building is us, the church. And lastly, the purpose of it is the beauty. We're the community built on and held together by him, our cornerstone. Verse 4, again, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. To those of us who believe in Jesus, he says, you will not be put to shame. Those born again to a living hope, those called to live a holy life, those established on Christ as a foundation. 
You know, I, it's, many people stumble over Jesus today. Many people trip and fall over him. They stumble over his teachings. Maybe they like some of his teachings. I like some of what he has to say. But when it comes to some of the things that God's word says, I stumble over that. That's a rock that causes offense. Or they stumble over his call. Like, I, I want to have a place for Jesus in my life, but I'm not sure I surrender everything to follow him. They stumble over that. In a world that dismisses and trashes Jesus, God calls communities of people who love him to declare his beauty and his glory. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 as we wrap up this portion. But you are a chosen race. This does not mean that God eliminates ethnic diversity. He glories in it. It reflects his beauty. It means there's no longer racial division in the kingdom of God. We have a new identity. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God, his own possession. What a statement that is. A people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We live in a time when people are desperately looking for their identity and trying to identify with this group or that group and trying to find, where's my place in this world? Where do I belong? Who are my people? And Peter is telling us, if you're in Christ, these are your people. He's chosen you. He's building you together in, to become a people in which he dwells. He's doing something beautiful in the world through his church. Now, I know there's ugliness in the church. I know that we don't always live up to this high calling. We are not always proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. Sometimes we're fighting, and sometimes we're stabbing each other. Sometimes we're, we're doing horrible things in the world. Nevertheless, by God's grace, he's calling us to be living stones, where he forgives us, he calls us to live a holy life, he redeems us, and he's building something in the world. Job one of the church is to glorify God, to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. Job number one. So everything that we're doing here at Chapel Street Church, we try to see through that lens to bring glory to God. The neighborhood church vision, to bring glory to God in that location. All of our programs and ministries to bring glory to God. That's what we're after. Jesus is not what many people are looking for. At least they don't think so. But he is what they need, what they desperately need. This is the motivating passion behind all that we do as a church. Let's look at Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That first verse, verse 20, many people know. To him who is able to do all more than we could ask or think, more than you could even imagine. And you think, well, I could imagine quite a lot. God can do more than I could imagine. But we're imagining about what God's going to do on our terms. God's vision is so much bigger than your limited imagination. Listen to what he says. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's what God is doing that is bigger than you could ask or imagine. What he's doing in his people in the church. 
exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. Now, I don't know where all of you are watching this right now, where your heart is as it relates to Christ. I don't know how isolated you feel from him, from God. I don't know if you feel part of a church or if you feel adrift. Here's what I do know. What Peter said to those followers of Jesus long ago, he's saying to you and to me, as you come to him, the living stone, the cornerstone, God does something miraculous. He brings you to life. He joins you to himself and to other believers. And he, he manifests his presence in the world. Friends, I'm just pleading with you, build your life on the rock and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Everything else will crumble under the weight of your expectations. Only he will hold you. Only he will hold us together in him. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you and we praise you for who you are. We confess to you that we're, we're often just trying to fit you into our lives and that will never work. Forgive us for that. Forgive us when we stumble over your teachings. And God, may we lay aside our agendas, our limited ideas of what you ought to be doing. God, would you forgive us for our brokenness? And would you, as we come to you, rebuild us on the foundation of your son, Jesus Christ. Make us living stones in him. That as we come to you, Lord Jesus, and as we sing your praises, and as we serve in your name, and as we give, and as we care and thank and praise, God, would you manifest your presence in us in this world? We can't fix all the problems in the world, but we can be the people you've called us to be. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Thank you, God, that that is what you're doing in us and in this world. We pray and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining and tuning in with us. Stay tuned now for some information about what's happening in the life of our church family this week.